Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, if you would please take it and open with me to the book of Micah. Book of Micah. If you have a Bible, a physical Bible, you open it halfway, you'll probably be somewhere close to the Psalms. Then you take the portion on your right hand and you open that halfway and you will be somewhere close uh, to Micah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. I'll give you a little extra time to find it. This Advent, we're looking at the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus Christ. And today, just like the people of God 2,700 years ago, we have grown confused, divided, burned out, frustrated, and angry. And there's a deep yearning in us for a resolution for rest, for peace. There's something inside of us, isn't there, that says this is not the way it's supposed to be. God called the prophets of Israel to step into the fray of ancient Israel in order to point them back to the ancient way. About the time that Romulus founded the city of Rome, about the sixth Olympiad in Greece, there was a prophet. His name was Micaiah. His name was shortened to Micah. His name means who is like Yahweh. He was from a Judean town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem called Morasheth. And like his contemporary Isaiah, Micah prophesied in the 8th century BC during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. John Calvin said that Micah and Isaiah should deliver their messages at the same time in God's providence with one mouth and avow their consent together so that all who read and hear might be convicted of their disobedience and be proved guilty before our infinitely beautiful and holy God. And found guilty, found, found guilty of what? Well, like Isaiah, Micah prophesied about the need for Israel to repent of their self-saving strategies. Like Isaiah, Micah spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah. And like many portions of the prophetic book, the book of Micah is poetry. It's not prose, not narrative. And so therefore, when you read it, you'll find a lot of the parallels of what he means will be reiterated line by line in Hebrew poetry. Micah has three messages. It's a relatively short prophetic book, but the three messages are these. One, that judgment is coming. Two, that blessing will follow judgment. And three, we are indicted by our sin, but there remains hope of promise in the blessing that is coming. So, each time Micah leads us in a message, he uses the Hebrew word hear or listen. 
And it reminds us of another one who often said, hear, hear what the Lord has to say to the churches in the book of John. Or often our Lord Jesus would often say, he who has ears, let him hear. So before we read God's word together as a church, do you have ears? Let's stand together if you're willing and able and we'll read Micah chapter 6. Do you have ears? Do you have ears to hear? Are you ready to listen to what God says to you? Micah chapter 5 verses 1 to 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the, Assyrians, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. This prophecy from Isaiah, first of all, shows us our need for a king. Once upon a time, there was a king. This king was a great king. In England, about the 5th century, whenever the Romans left the Isle and the Saxons were coming across the English Channel from Germany and the Germanic region at the time. It was a very vicious and dangerous time in the land. And so the king of England, Uther Pendragon, decided to hide his son Arthur away to be safe. And with the help of Merlin, the long-bearded wizard, they placed Arthur in a safe place where the child could be where no one would find out his true identity. And the enemies of England didn't know about Arthur. No one knew Arthur's true lineage. And as Arthur grew up, he was a skinny, scrawny kid. The kids bullied him and made fun of him because he was so small, but this wasn't to last for long. The enemies of the king had poisoned Uther Pendragon and without an heir to the throne all the nobles of the land came to Merlin to ask who is going to be the new king and Merlin said in Westminster there is a sword and it is in the stone and it's a powerful blade and whoever can take this sword out of the stone will be the true king of England and so for many years the nobles gathered and the strong men came poured oil on the sword, 
tried to pull it out with all their might. Even one tried to break the stone in order to pull out the sword. But no one could even budge it. And in the meantime, Merlin met with this young Arthur and hidden away. And he began to train and teach young Arthur. And Arthur was sharp. And he began to absorb Merlin's teaching like a sponge. And Merlin began to invest more and more into this boy. And it was, it was uh, admirable, this boy's intelligence and integrity and moral virtues. And so when the boy was 15 years old, Merlin brought him to Westminster. And there at Westminster, this young, scrawny, 15-year-old boy walks before the nobles of England and all the strong men who had once tried their hand at the sword. And they looked at him, and one giant of a man said, Ha! Oh, that boy's not even strong enough to carry a knife, much less pull out a sword. And young Arthur looked around and took in the moment. And he reached in, and he grabbed Excalibur from the stone, and slid the sword out as though it was just in a sheath waiting for him. And he stood there like that in silence, holding the sword. People's mouths dropped. And he worried for a second that maybe he would just be the, scr the scrawny boy all of his life and that nobody would follow him. And then one lady in the back of the crowd yelled, Hail King Arthur, our new king! And then the crowd just exploded in applause and shouting, Hail King Arthur, our new king. We love stories about kings, don't we? There's something in us that yearns for a king. There's something in us that is just, it just loves the stories of kings. It's timeless to tell a story of a king. Once upon a time, there was a king. We love, we're gripped by the story of a king, of a king whose kingdom stretches far and wide, who will judge the world and he will demonstrate his leadership with excellence and integrity. We long to follow a king like that. Men, why is it that every time you watch Braveheart, you're like, yeah! You'll follow a king like that, William Wallace. Ladies, why is it that you long for a charming king to come and to tell you that you're beautiful? Our hearts yearn for a king. Once about a time there was a king. And today we might say, oh, I don't want a king. There was, um, on Bill Maher one time interviewed a, a, a lady who was a Christian back when Bill Maher was, was uh, doing his, his evening talk show. And, and the lady who was a Christian was explaining to him why she evangelized. And she said, there's just this, there's just this hunger I had and, and this thirst that was quenched. And, and I can see, Bill, I can see, Bill, that, that, that you, you also have that kind of thirst. And Bill Maher said, well, I'm not even hungry. I don't need a king. I'm okay on my own. And you might be doing okay on your own too. But if your marriage begins to fall apart and you're powerless to stop it, you'll need a king. When your body begins to break down because of age or disease and all the doctors can do is give you a timeline, you'll need a king. 
When you haven't had a job for months and the prospect of a job on the horizon looks very dim, you'll need a king. When your money runs out and you find yourself having to cut back on your lifestyle and ask the church for help, you'll need a king. When you find your friendships suffer setback and you can't reconcile with them no matter what you do, you'll need a king. When your New Year's resolutions fail, and they will, what will you do? You'll need a king. When your kids don't want to obey and will do anything not to and you can't stop it, <laughs> you'll need a king. When will you see that the world is evil and our heart yearns for a king and yet we, we run to all those things that use and abuse us. Paul cried, the good I want to do, I do not do. The evil that I want to avoid, I always end up doing. Who will rescue me from this body of death? We need a king. Amen? I need a king. Do you, do you really believe you need one? Micah tells us that once upon a time there was a king. And he is coming back for you. The king of Assyria threatened Israel and because of Israel's hardness of heart, they refused to turn back to the one true God. And so God delivered them over to judgment. And Micah's message was that blessing will follow this judgment in chapters 3 to chapters 5 of Micah. And he had just finished giving the characteristics of the coming kingdom when he writes in Micah 4, 3, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. In our day and age, it's foreign for us to think about the fact that we need a king because we don't have a king in this country, do we? But did you know that the very first person we elected president of this country quoted this last passage in Micah chapter 4 verse 3 over 50 times in his letters? When President George Washington said, I yearn that every man be able to sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. If you've seen the play Hamilton, you even saw that that worked its way into the lyrics of the play. Over, 200, over 50 times Washington compared England to Assyria in an effort to describe the freedom and independence that God's people might enjoy under God's sovereign rule as the people decide. And here 250 years later, here we are in this great country today. But yet we're wondering, how have we become so divided? Once upon a time, there was a king. The New Testament writers waste no time identifying this once and future king is Jesus. So the question is not, why do you need a king? But why King Jesus? Why follow him? Why not follow another king? 
Why should I give my life to Jesus? Why is Jesus the once and future king for you and for me? Well, let's look at what Micah has to say. Why should we follow this king? Because number one, this king reorients power. The true king reorients power. Notice what he says. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Here Israel, Micah says, will be besieged. This is before the Babylonians came to besiege Jerusalem ultimately. And this is before even Assyria took Israel into captivity. He calls Jerusalem a city of troops. A city full, O daughter, is a reference to Jerusalem. O city full of marauding soldiers within her walls. And the siege is working. The, the, the leader is humiliated. And today we might say they backhanded the president. The situation could not be more dire. The kingdom was in shambles and God's people are desperate. And the nearest historical reference we have to this prophecy was the, the capture and torture of King Zedekiah by Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Kings chapter 25. But when Matthew is putting together his gospel 750 years later, he reflects back on this prophecy of Micah. And he reminds Israel that there is a true and better King Zedekiah to come. One who also will be backhanded. One who Matthew, Mark, and John all, say, all say that Jesus was struck on the cheek, not by a foreign power, but by his own people. Just as Micah foretold. But you, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel. This king will come not only in the midst of a besieged city, but this king will come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which was about five miles away from Jerusalem. If you've been to the Middle East, it's hardly um, recognizable because it's contiguous with the city of Jerusalem now. Ephrathah was also called Ephrath. It refers to the area that was around Bethlehem in the ancient world. And Micah stirs his hearers. Could it be? Could it be that there's going to be a king who will come, a true and better Zedekiah, a true, a true and better David in Micah's day, who might return? But kings in Micah's day were to come from Jerusalem. They weren't to come from Bethlehem. Just like kings in our day, they come from, they come from the big cities. They don't come from Coweta. They don't come from Skytook. They don't come from Muskogee. They come from LA. They come from, they come from New York. They come from Washington, D.C. But here, here it says that they, the king will come from Bethlehem, which is a town too small even to be listed among the clans of Judah in Joshua 15 or Nehemiah chapter 11. But it's not that, he, that this king even came from Bethlehem, is it? It's, it's how he came. The scribes and Pharisees expected Jesus to come as a royal king with power to vanquish their Roman oppressors and to rededicate the temple. They wanted somebody who would rule. They wanted an avenger. But instead, 
They got a little boy in a smelly manger with animals and shepherds. His earthly father was a carpenter the first couple of years of his life. He spent out on the run to avoid being killed. And when they finally moved back to Nazareth, do you remember, do you remember what they said? Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And when Jesus began his ministry, he didn't, he didn't go to the powerful and to the rulers of the day. He went to the prostitutes and to the lepers. He went to the sick and to the poor. And he preached words of comfort and forgiveness to the sinners. And he preached words of judgment to the self-righteous and to the religious. Oh, this king reorients power. He hung out with the marginalized. And when he came into Jerusalem for the final week of his life, the week we call the triumphal entry, he didn't come on a war horse like the kings of the day with warriors in procession. No, he came on a donkey, a working man's steed with a ragtag group of followers behind him. And he didn't overcome the Roman authorities. No, in fact, the Roman authorities crucified him on a tree. And he got his royal crown, a crown of thorns. He was what Isaiah prophesied and no one was ready for, the suffering servant. People of Jesus' day said, Jesus did it all wrong. But he orient, reorients power. Once upon a time, there was a king and then he rose from the grave and he conquered Satan and he defeated death. Amen? He rose again to the right hand of the Father on high and now Jesus Christ is reigning with power. Oh, Jesus is powerful. This once and future king, this king that you need reorients power. I wonder if you know him. Micah says that this once and future king is coming forth from of old, as he says in the text. Do you see it? From ancient of days. The ruler's origins are from of old, from ancient days. The Hebrew literally says days of immeasurable time. Daniel in Daniel chapter 4 also refers to the ancient of days, the one who stands outside of time. John and John 1, 1 and Philippians 2, 6 and, and Paul and Colossians 1, 17 and John again in Revelation 1, 8 emphasize that Jesus always existed with the Father and His Spirit. And in the, the days of Jesus when He walked the earth, one day John tells us in John 6 that Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And immediately after he fed those 5,000, what does John say? It says the people conspired to make them a king. Make him a king. Make him a king. And it says, Jesus says, I don't get used to be your puppet king. And he withdrew from the crowd, slipping through their clutches, and he went off to a mountain by himself to pray. Listen, I know some of you in this very room and listening have been burned by Christianity. Or you've been burned by the church, by people who have used Jesus as a power play. People in your life have taken Jesus and they have used him in a way that he would never have allowed himself to operate. And I just want you to know 
that you should be angry about that. That's righteous anger to use the Son of God as a power play. And I'm sorry that I as a minister might trigger for you yet again the deep hurt that you feel. That emotion you feel is real and it's deep. You cannot tote Jesus around to get votes for your agenda. And Jesus won't let you use him to get power. He reorients power. And horrible things have been done in the name of Jesus. Crusades, slavery, bombings even done in his name at abortion clinics. Well, you might say to me, well, yeah, but what about what they do? Well, Micah is not talking to Nebuchadnezzar and I'm not talking to them either. Micah was talking to Judah and so I'm talking to you, oh beloved, in the church. One day Daniel speaks directly to Nebuchadnezzar and there'll be a day when we have the chance to speak directly to the leaders of the world, but that's not this day. This day it's for you. Oh, I know. I live in your world too. I know what they do. I know we're under persecution. I know that their arrows are sharp. I know that it's subtle. Like, I, listen, I know. Please come visit me when I'm incarcerated one day for preaching the truth of God's word. I know. But if the idea of abuse of power resonates with you, I just want you to know that you've got people in this church who want to walk with you through that. And that even is a very vulnerable step to take, I know. If you've been hurt in community, you find healing in community. And we long for this church to be a place where we see a reoriented power that the way up is actually through repentance. That the way to grow in the Christian life is actually by recognizing that I, you, would admit that you are the worst sinner in this room. If Jesus reorients power, that's true. And if we need a king, what are the results? Well, look at verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of God. What are the results of this king who reorients power? Well, first, number one, he will restore and he will reunite the people of God. Micah loved the image of a woman in labor. It represented the pain that the believers in Judah felt at the time of being under foreign oppression. But the time will come, Micah says, when the labor will end and the birth will arrive. And this begins when Mary gives birth to Jesus on Christmas Day. Jesus, the Messiah, grows up to lead a new nation, not by status or bloodline, but by faith. Paul says that all who place their faith in Christ are true Israel. Romans chapter 9, verse 6 to 8. Romans 8, verse 16, 21. Philippians chapter 2, 15. Also Hosea chapter 1 refers to it. So here's the Messiah. Jesus, from Bethlehem, born at the appointed time of Mary's labor, Galatians 4.4, 4, who leads a new people led by 12 disciples after the 12 tribes of Israel. The king has come, 
And Jesus commands them to make disciples not of their own people, but of all nations. And to set the mark of the covenant upon them, baptism, which is no longer limited to just little boys, but it's to go to men and women, all tribes, tongues, and nations. And what else results? And he shall stand and he shall shepherd his flock with the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Not only will he restore and reunite the people of God, but secondly, he will care for his people and he will give them security. The Russian uh, uh, author Chingiz Amatov once told a story about Joseph Stalin and how Joseph Stalin taught his closest comrades how to rule. Stalin grabbed all of his nobles and comrades into a conference room and Stalin had a live chicken brought in. They placed the chicken on Stalin's lap. And there before his comrades, he plucked the chicken, every feather. He left no feather on the chicken. Only the comb was left on his head. And then Stalin said, now watch this. And he set the chicken down. He opened the door. Everybody expected the chicken to run out the door, but the chicken just pressed itself against Stalin's boot. And then Stalin pulled out a piece of bread and he began to walk around. And that plucked, embarrassed, naked chicken just followed Joseph Stalin wherever he went. And he said, that is how you lead. Oh, friends. Jesus, your Savior, says to you, the idols of your heart that you pursue have left you naked and exposed. And the door is open for you to return to Christ, but often you come and run back to that idol. You press yourself back against the boot of that idol. Isaiah said, who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? He says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into gold his idol and he falls down to it and he worships it and he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Some of you in this room are pressing against the boot of idolatry, of your addiction, of wonderful things that you have made over desires in your life and it is killing you. But the door is open. You have a king and your king is coming back for you. Micah says, Jesus, the once and future king, he will shepherd his flock, but he won't shepherd his flock like Stalin. He won't shepherd his flock like the Assyrians or the nation's leaders in Micah's day. He will shepherd the flock like a good shepherd, guiding, protecting, comforting, accomplishing all that he promised by the strength of his arm. He will not pluck you. He will cover you by his own righteousness. His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and to the depths of your heart. And since he will rule over the entire world, he starts with you. So that all will know of his sovereign power. That he will once and for all guarantee the safety of his people. And look what it says next. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their 
peace. Not only will this Jesus, this one who reorients power, restore and reunite the people of God, not only will he protect and shepherd and give security to us, but third, Christ, the once and future king, will destroy all of Israel's and all of our enemies. Jesus will bring us, the new Israel, peace because he will be Israel's peace. Because with him the ultimate peace offering has been given. The final offering, Jesus will give his life to subdue the hostile powers that threaten his people, sin and death. The Westminster Shorter Catechism that the church used to teach children up until the age of five to seven says this in question 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? The answer Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Amen? And when the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our palaces, then he will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and he shall deliver uh, and the, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. The land of Nimrod in scripture is another name for Assyria. And although Assyria did not exist as a nation in the future of Israel, it represents nations like Assyria in Micah's time that threatened and attacked Jerusalem. And Jesus enables his people to defeat our foes because he was the one who did the conquering. He was the king once for all given. And he came as a king to reorient power, not to let a hair fall from our head. Not to harm us, but to shepherd us and comfort us. And Micah says, and he will, he will give seven shepherds, eight princes of men. He will give men endowed by the Holy Spirit to also help guide and to lead his church to see the beauty of this king once and future who will come again to make everything new. Once upon a time, there was a king and he's coming back for you. And Micah shows us that he does this in Jesus, the once and future king who reorients power to restore and reunite all of us as God's people. The one who will shepherd us with love, fairness, security, and the one who will ultimately defeat our enemies of sin and death. Hallelujah. All hail our new king, King Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.